Our text for this morning is Exodus 12, verses 1 to 28. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have here in these verses the Lord's instructions to his people for the celebration of the Passover. That Passover feast, which the Lord commanded them to celebrate, was a memorial. We read that in verse 14 of the passage. This day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. It was a memorial to them, first of all, of the hard bondage under which they had served Pharaoh and his people as slaves. It was a memorial in the second place of the mighty works that the Lord had performed for them there in the land of Egypt. All those plagues that he had brought upon Pharaoh and his people because of Pharaoh's refusal to let them go. It was especially, of course, a memorial of the last of those plagues in which the Lord destroyed Egypt's firstborn. And finally, it was a memorial of the Lord's passing over them as he went through the land of Egypt destroying the firstborn and passing over them because of the blood which was on the posts of the doors of their houses. This Passover has been replaced in the New Testament by the Lord's Supper, which is also, of course, for us a memorial a reminder of the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blood which has been shed for us and protects us from the wrathful judgment of God against the sins of the world. The passage also deals with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There are regulations not only for the Passover, but also for that feast. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread was like the Passover, a memorial for the people and a response to the people, of the people to the Passover. It was a memorial in the sense that in this Feast of Unleavened Bread, the people were reminded of the haste with which God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. We'll be looking at that in a little bit. And in the second place, it was a reminder of God's mighty work of saving them from sin, and therefore, because he had saved them from sin, calling them to live in holiness before them, before him. That is, to put away the leaven of malice and wickedness from themselves, and to live unto him from that time forward. So we look this morning at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and what we want to do in the first point is just look at some general things about the Passover especially um, that are found throughout this passage. In the second place, we want to look at the specific regulations surrounding the Passover, and then finally at the actual observance of the Passover by the people of Israel. There are uh, three things that we want to notice it that are about the Passover in general, and then one additional comment that we want to make in this connection. The first of these things is that God says already at the very beginning of his instructions to Moses in verse 2, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. In other words, what the Lord did was change the whole calendar of the people of Israel at this point. 
This was not, this month of Abib, or as it's later known as Nisan, this month was not the first month of the year for Israel prior to this. But God, because this was the time that he was bringing them out of the land of Egypt, that this was the time of the celebration of the Passover, therefore, God made this month the first month of the year for them. God began to establish for his people Israel here in Exodus chapter 12 an ecclesiastical calendar. An ecclesiastical calendar which would govern all of their lives from this time forward. In fact, their lives would revolve around the central events of this calendar which he was establishing for them. This calendar is not filled out yet at this point in Exodus. God fills out the calendar later when they come to Mount Sinai and he gives them his whole law, including all the ceremonies of the law. And at that time he added, of course, to the uh, celebrations which Israel was to perform during the year, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the new moons, especially the new moon of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All these were part of that ecclesiastical calendar which the Lord gave to them and around which their lives revolved. Now all of these ceremonies that God appointed for their ecclesiastical calendar have been fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. The church no longer observes them. In fact, it may no longer observe them in that old physical way. We observe them only in a spiritual sense, as we'll see with regard especially to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But therefore, and therefore, there is no ecclesiastical calendar for us to follow in these days. The only part of Israel's ecclesiastical calendar is that part which they inherited from God's creative work, the observance of the Sabbath day. And even that has changed from observing the seventh to observing the first day of the week. So that's first. God is establishing this ecclesiastical calendar for his people, and the beginning of that is found here in the commandments regarding the Passover. Uh, but there's another thing here in these um, verses that I think we might say is even more important and, and is very interesting in this passage. You find it in verse 3, first of all. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. That word, speak to all the congregation of Israel, is the first time in Exodus and in the scriptures that Israel is called the congregation. And you find it again in verse 6, the last part, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it, at twilight. This is the first time then God speaks of his people Israel as a congregation and as an assembly. And this is because he is at this time, and this work will continue through his work at Mount Sinai, he is at this time beginning to constitute them as his people, 
to form them into that special people of which he had spoken many years before to Abraham. The Passover is to this people Israel a celebration of the people as a congregation and as an assembly. It's celebrated at this time in individual households, of course. And yet, they are not to celebrate it individually as far as time is concerned or manner is concerned. They are all at the, to kill the Passover lamb at the same time, to eat the Passover feast at the same time, and to remember then that they are the people of the Lord. They are, from this time forward, his congregation, his assembly. He has constituted them as his people, the Old Testament church. Now it will also uh, be worthwhile, I think, to take a quick look at the two words that verse 6 uses. The words assembly and congregation. The word congregation, also used in verse 3, has the idea of an appointed gathering. And of course what the Lord is saying here is that this uh, Passover feast is an appointed gathering of the people. That he commands it, he has appointed it in its time and in its manner, and they are to observe it as his people, as his congregation. And the second word, the word assembly, or translated here as assembly, is a word that really means a called gathering. It's the word that comes closest in the Old Testament to the New Testament word ecclesia, from which we get our word ecclesiastical. It's the word, that word in the New Testament means the called out. And the idea here of that word is that God has called his people into this assembly, into this gathering, to this feast day, which he has appointed for them. They are the people whom he has separated from the world, from Egypt, whom he has designated as his people, and they have special functions as his people which they are to observe. So that's the second thing that we want to notice. Israel is now constituted as the congregation and assembly of the Lord. The third thing we want to notice is something we picked up already in the introduction, and that is that this feast of the Passover was a memorial for them. And we talked about what the memorial meant, but it was a memorial to be observed not just by that generation of Israel, but a memorial to be observed also by the generations to come, all down through Israel's history, so that we find our Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples a thousand and more years later, observing this Passover themselves. And therefore, because it was a memorial for their generations also, they had to explain it to their children. You read about that in verses 26 and 27. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? 
that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. They were to instruct their children also in the observance of this memorial. So those are the three things we want to pick up from this passage. Now, there's one other note we should make here, I think, and that is that in the years to come, as Israel was in the wilderness, and especially when Israel entered the land of Canaan, there were some additional provisions made and even some changes made to the observance of the Passover. For example, in Numbers chapter 9, where we have an account of the uh, Passover again, Numbers chapter 9, verses 6 to 12, we have a special provision made there. Verse 6, Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. Notice that they were unclean because they had been defiled by a corpse, and that this uncleanness made it impossible for them to observe the Passover. The law forbade them to observe it if they were unclean. Another regulation with regard to the Passover that Exodus 12 does not mention. These men said to him, We became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? And Moses said to them, Stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse, or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the the Lord's Passover. On the fourteenth day of the second month, at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So the same regulations apply as with the observance of the normal Passover, but these men who were defiled, or people who would be on a journey, were allowed to observe the Passover in the second month rather than the first month. And then, if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, another account of the Passover, we find there that the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, to Israel, before therefore they entered the land of Canaan, when you come into the land, this is how you're to observe the Passover. You are to go to the place where the Lord will put his name, and you are to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread there. In Egypt, each household was gathered in its own house and had its own lamb. In the land of Canaan, they were to go to the temple or the tabernacle, and they were to observe the Passover there at the Lord's house. The lamb was to be killed by the priests, though they did go off then to their own houses or their own places which they, in which they were living at Jerusalem or wherever it was to eat the Passover. So it was to be observed as a public, a national gathering then at the place which the Lord chose to put his name. And then finally it appears from the celebration of the last Passover by Jesus and his disciples, 
that they did not eat the Passover standing with their loins girded, their sandals on their feet, and their staffs in their hand. We read that the Lord and his disciples were sitting at the table. So that regulation was only apparently for this first observance in Egypt. So those are the the general things that we want to notice about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But now we come to the specific regulations about the Passover. And there are a number of these regulations which we're going to pass over because the significance of these uh, uh, particular regulations is not very clear. For example, they were to select the lamb for the Passover on the 10th day of the month but not to slaughter the lamb until the 14th day. Why was that? And the only thing I can think of to point to in this regard is that in the seventh month, when they observed the Feast of Tabernacles, that feast was preceded by the Great Day of Atonement, which was also on the 10th day of the month. So you had that same pattern, the Feast of the the, uh, Passover was begun on the 10th with the selection of the lamb and the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th. And then in the uh, 7th month, the Day of Atonement was on the 10th and the Feast of of Tabernacles began on the 15th. That's one thing. Another thing was that uh, each household was to select its own lamb. And these uh, households then were, uh, if they were too small to consume the whole lamb themselves, they could share the lamb with other households. But whether that has any particular significance or not, I don't know. Thirdly, it was, that it was the case that the lambs selected had to be males of the first year, either less than a year old or between one and two years old, according to which commentary you read. And again, that's not clear, though Matthew Henry says the lamb then was in the prime of its strength, just as our Lord Jesus Christ was in the prime of his strength when he died as the Lamb of God. So we're going to pass over those things, and we're going to focus on the other things which have clear significance. One of the things, of course, that stands out here is that the lamb is to be without blemish. The lamb is to be, as nearly as possible, a perfect lamb, without any kind of defect. This pertained not only to the lamb of the Passover, but also to other sacrifices which the people of God had to offer. In Leviticus chapter 22, beginning in verse 19, you read about some of this. We'll pay attention only to verses 24 and 25. You shall not offer to the Lord... What is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. Nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. And remember that the Lord sharply condemned his people many years later by the prophet Malachi for transgressing exactly this regulation. Malachi 1, verse 8, first, 
Malachi 1 verse 8, When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? And then again in verses 13 and 14, And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So they were to uh, bring the best of their flock, of the lambs of their flock. And that was because, in the first place, the Lord was worthy of the best. He is a great king, worthy of the best offerings that they can bring to him. But this also, as we know, points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. The perfection of the Lamb pointed to the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his perfection, of course, he was able to bear our sins. He did not have to offer for himself but could make himself an offering for the sins of his people. In the second place, we notice then in these regulations that the blood of the lamb was to be placed on the doorposts. They were to collect the blood when they slaughtered it in a basin, and they were then to take that blood and put it on the doorposts of their houses. And this was because God was coming through the land of Egypt in judgment. You read about it in verses 12 and 13. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will exercise judgment, execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they were to put this blood on their doorposts, and that blood would protect them from the judgment that God was bringing on Egypt. The Lord would see that blood as he was walking through the land of Egypt, destroying the firstborn, And when he saw it, he would pass over that house. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, part of the significance of that is certainly, people of God, that the people of Israel were as worthy of the judgment of the Lord as the Egyptians. They were not different from the Egyptians in this regard. And, of course, they showed that in their later history. 
They would have been destroyed along with Egypt if that blood had not been on their doorposts. Only the blood could protect them from the judgment of God. Now you may say, well, there was only the firstborn, but the firstborn stood for the whole. The firstborn of Egypt stood for the whole of Egypt, and God was making a sign that he would destroy the whole of Egypt by his judgments. And when God protected the firstborn of Israel by that blood, made the lamb, he made the lamb a substitute for those firstborn. And did not enter those houses to destroy those firstborn, but he was also making a sign that he would not destroy Israel, his firstborn, because they were protected by that blood. That is the blood of atonement, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Hebrews puts it, it is the blood of sprinkling. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28 Hebrews 11, verse 28, By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And in chapter 12 also, verse 24, though we have to begin reading a little bit earlier, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, notice those words, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, note that also, of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Blood was a type or a sign of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's one other thing about that blood, which you can notice in verse 22 of the chapter. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So they were to use hyssop, and this also became significant. It was used in other cleansing rituals of the people of Israel that God established later at Mount Sinai. Leviticus 14, verse 4. This was the cleansing of lepers. The priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop. And then there's a ceremony that follows involving that hyssop. And again in uh, Numbers 19, verse 6, another ceremony of cleansing. Numbers 19, verse 6. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. So it was part of these cleansing rituals. And it's because of this uh, hyssop, that's part of the cleansing rituals that David says in Psalm 51, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We may notice also in this chapter that the lamb was to be roasted. 
was not to be boiled, and it was not to be eaten raw. I think we may say that it was not to be eaten raw because of what God told his people in Leviticus 17, verses 13 and 14. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And they were to roast it rather than boiling it, I think, because fire was a sign of the judgment of God. No bone of the lamb was to be broken. We don't find that here in Exodus 12, but rather in Numbers chapter 9. No bone of the lamb was to be broken. It was to be roasted whole, in fact. They didn't even remove the head or the legs or the entrails before they roasted the lamb. They roasted it whole. But it was uh, also no bone of the lamb to be broken. This too is referred to in later scriptures. Psalm 34, verse 20, beginning instead at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And that, I think, means he preserves them from complete destruction. And John says in chapter 19 that this was fulfilled in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 19, verses 33 and 36 But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They broke the legs of the two thieves who had been crucified with Jesus, but they did not break the legs of Jesus. For these things were done, verse 36, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And then finally, they were to eat the lamb. That's a sign of their participation in what that lamb signifies, their participation in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were to eat the lamb completely or to destroy the rest of the lamb with fire if they could not eat it. And that, I think, was because the lamb had become holy through this ceremony and might not be given over to profane use. So those are the main regulations about the the lamb. There are, of course, a couple of other parts of the Passover as well. There's, first of all, the uh, bitter herbs that they ate with the Passover. And those bitter herbs are a sign of their bitter bondage The same word that's used in Exodus 12 is also found in Exodus 1 verse 14. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So this was a memorial of their hard bondage in the land of Egypt. They were to eat unleavened bread only. 
The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we'll talk about in a moment, was celebrated with unleavened bread, but the Passover was also celebrated with unleavened bread. There's a double significance to that. First of all, it shows the haste with which the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's in verses 34 and 39 of Exodus 12. The people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. And verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. The Lord took them out of their bondage with such haste that they had no time to leaven their bread. But Paul points us to the spiritual significance of this leavened, unleavened bread when he says we must put away the leaven of malice and wickedness in 1 Corinthians 5. There's no place for sin in the company of our holy God. We must be sanctified. We must put off the leaven of malice and wickedness. The haste with which they left the land of Egypt was also signified in this first Passover by their being prepared for travel. Their belts girded, and what that means is that their long robes, the skirts of their long robes, were tucked up into their belts to free their legs for walking. They had their sandals on and their staffs in their hand while they ate, so that they could be ready to go at a moment's notice. That brings us to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's much less about that uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread here than there is about the Passover itself. Besides the fact that they were to eat only unleavened bread for seven days, we note these things, that the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the seventh day were holy convocations. You get this idea again of the congregation, the gathering of the congregation of God. They were holy convocations. Verse 16, they were to do no work on those days. They were Sabbath days, additional Sabbath days besides the weekly Sabbath that the Lord had appointed for his people. The only thing they were allowed to do and by way of work was to prepare the food that they needed for eating. So that's one thing. They had Sabbath observances at the beginning and at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, how Israel did that is not explained to us here. They went out of Egypt on the day of the Passover, on the night of the Passover. They left. And that first day following the Passover was when the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. How did they celebrate it? We don't know. How did they have a holy convocation? We don't know. It appears that there was no time for them to have it while they were in the land of Egypt. Did they have it then while they were in the wilderness? And the same pertains to the Sabbath of the seventh day of that Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't read about them celebrating that uh, seventh day when they were in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. The other thing that we want to notice here is that anyone who ate leaven during that seven days was to be cut off from the people. He was to be what we would call excommunicated. He would have no place in the congregation of the Lord. And this applied, verse 19 to strangers as well as natives. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? 
The strangers who lived among the people of Israel were not allowed to partake of the Passover unless they were circumcised and joined the nation through that rite of circumcision. But as strangers, they were not allowed to partake. However, they were required to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They might not have leaven in their houses during that seven days. The strangers also had to observe that. And if they did not observe it, they too would be cut off from the nation. Finally, then, we look at the actual observance. In verses 21 and and following, we've already talked about some of those verses, so we need to note only a few things here. First of all, Moses called the elders of Israel together. And he passed on to them the instructions he had received from God. The elders then communicated these instructions to the people. When the people heard these instructions, we read in verse 27, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now that's the very same response that Israel had to the first announcement of God's intention to deliver them from Egypt. That's in Exodus 4, verse 31. Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, did the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's a grateful acknowledgement of the goodness of the Lord to them. And they did then, verse 28 says, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. We've talked about the fact that that's kind of a theme throughout Exodus. You keep on reading that over and over again. They did as the Lord commanded. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Later the people did as the Lord commanded, especially in the building of the tabernacle. This is, people of God, the rule of, of thankfulness, to do as the Lord commands. So what we see in the Passover is a picture of our deliverance from the bondage of sin. That bondage of sin is a bitter and cruel bondage. The master we serve in that bondage is not a loving and kind master who wills good for us, He is a cruel and harsh master who hates us and wants to destroy us. But the Lord redeems us from that bondage. He redeems us by blood. There's only one way of deliverance from that bondage. By the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And because of that blood which has been shed for us and delivered us from the bondage of sin, we render to God a grateful obedience by putting away the leaven of malice and wickedness. Paul points us to the significance of this whole uh, complex of regulations in verses 6 and following of 1 Corinthians 5. Your glorying is not good. Do you, know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, 
since you truly are leavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We observe this feast of unleavened bread then, not by doing away with leaven for seven days in our homes, but rather by throughout our lives, every day of our lives, putting away the leaven of malice and wickedness as a sign of our grateful acknowledgement to the Lord that he has delivered us from the bondage of sin. In fact, of course, he has delivered us from the bondage of sin. We are a new people because of that. How can we then return to that old way of life? The Lord has redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. We live then unto him. May God bless the proclamation of his word.